From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. This week on the show, we're bringing you something different. A story from somebody else. How did you find this guy? Uh, Let's see. That was, so Erin Jones, um, our other producer, I think she found him, right? Well, wasn't it Ryan? Ryan knew this guy. So we had a producer. (laughs) Sorry, this is not a very clear, straightforward. I think think it was Ryan. Meet Caroline Ballard and Micah Schweitzer. This is the duo that conceived of and created another local public radio podcast called Human Nature. It's based in Wyoming. Can I tell you what I love about your show? Absolutely. I love that everybody that you guys have on is a total character. I feel like half the time we find somebody that, you know, we'll meet. I don't know. I met someone on a camping trip or, you know, Micah has has met people doing some of these uh, recording sessions around the state. We meet these people and we're like, wow, they're such interesting people. I bet they have a story. So then the story kind of comes second after we already know that they're engaging and that, you know, they're they're an interesting person and, you know, interesting people have interesting stories. Well, I mean, sometimes we get lucky, too, um, where we, we hear about something that we think has a story in it, and it just happens that, you know, the person who has that story is able to tell it well. So, um, but I think, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that we just make space for people to talk and tell their story. So today on Outside In, a story from a couple of kindred spirits. It's the story of a man, his walk through an unfamiliar culture, and an unexpected friendship. Unexpected in a couple of different ways. More than a decade ago, John Dunham packed up some books, some food, and a tent, and began walking south from Oregon. He wanted to make his world bigger. For a year, he walked through the western U.S., finally arriving in Texas. And when he got there, it was decision time. Should he do as he'd always wanted and continue south, even though he didn't speak Spanish? He thought, why not? and kept walking into arid northern Mexico. It was a really difficult experience, really isolating experience, more so even than just walking in the United States because I was unable to communicate with the people, which was something I really valued when I was walking in the States, the people I'd meet, the ideas that that uh, we would share. That was really something important to me. It was even worse because you didn't know what they were saying about you. But when John walked into a tiny village, everything about his isolation changed. As he walked down the main street, he met a family who offered him breakfast. Just through uh, the few words in English that, that some of them knew and, the, and my dictionary, we just started to communicate and they, they invited me to stay uh, the night, and then the son invited me to, to work with the cows, and they're like, well, you have to stay for the wedding. Their daughter's wedding. And after the wedding, the family sort of adopted him, and he stayed with them for a year. I started to learn to, to milk cows, which is very difficult if you don't have someone to explain to you how to do it. You just kind of have to learn from ground zero. I started to learn the language. I started to learn the culture, their values, the way they thought the way they worked, the way they lived, uh, which was all new to me, so it was very interesting. 
And when the year was up, when the year had passed, I told them that uh, I wanted to continue on whatever it was I was doing. I wanted to continue my walk, I guess. And the grandfather came to me one day and he, he gave me a pair of boots and a pair of pants and he gave me a donkey. Which was kind of terrifying at the time because, uh, I mean, how do you take care of a donkey? Like, what does a donkey eat? How much does it drink? How much can it carry? How far can it walk? Does it need horseshoes? Like, do you need to deworm it? Do you need to get vaccinations? Like, there's an endless list of things that I had questions to and no answers. <laughs> and my, my friends are like, ah, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. <laughs> Why did he give you a donkey? Well, because I was walking when I came to the and I, you know, I had a backpack, so the backpack is really heavy. It was, it was such a, it was so much deeper and so much rich a gift than I could have imagined at that time. Because what the donkey really did for me is he created kind of a bridge between me and the people. Before the donkey, not a lot of people came up to John to talk to him. But now they did, because even in rural parts of Latin America, it's not every day you see someone walking with a donkey. When I had the donkey, people were much more willing to um, come close to me and talk to me and ask me questions and I met just tons and tons of people. What did you name the donkey? His name was uh, Judas in Spanish with us, although in English I'd call him Jude, but I mostly just spoke to him in, in Spanish, so I'd call him Judas. What, why that <laughs> name? Why did you name him Judas? Well, there's lots of reasons. I, I, kind of, I kind of like the name because whenever I told people his name was Judas, they would immediately associate it with the traitor. Um, in the Bible, one of the other apostles was also named Judas. You don't really ever hear about him, but he did exist. And in the Catholic Church, he's, he's a saint, and he's a saint of lost causes, which I kind of identified with. <laughs> it was interesting how he interacted with people. Like, I stopped trusting my ability to, to make judgments of people. Like, I would meet people, and I'd be like, wow, this guy's so cool, I really like him. And then I'd find out, you know, he was like a, a sicario, he was like an assassin for hire. And then I'd meet other people like, this person is so annoying, he's a dork, I don't like him, I don't like being with him. And he ended up being like one of my most faithful friends. But Judas would, he would get, sometimes with some people would get really nervous. Like, you know, he'd put his head down and he'd like be really fidgety and he'd be like pushing on me. And I realized that he was not comfortable in the situation, which made me uncomfortable, which made me want to just move on and say, well, it's really nice to meet you, but I need to try to go a little further today. Um, and other times we meet people and he'd, he'd be totally calm, like he would be at peace, which would also make me feel more at ease. For a year, John and Judas made their way through Central America. But continuing on to South America wasn't so easy. For starters, there's no road connecting the continents. Like you can't, can't get to South America by road. There's no road. Even though if you look at the map, you can see that Panama is connected with Colombia and South America. It's like a totally undeveloped region. It's dense jungle. And John says everything there is trying to kill you. If it's not the snakes trying to bite you, it's the rebel army, FARC, trying to kidnap you. And then if I did happen to get past the jungle and the FARC, then the Colombian government would put me in jail for entering the country illegally, and they would sacrifice my donkey for also entering illegally. So it, it just, I couldn't think of any good reason to go into this area. So the only way around it is mostly by airplane, but it's kind of hard to stick a donkey on an airplane. So my only real option was to try to find a boat. But there's no passenger boats, there's no tourist boats, there's only cargo boats. So you go down to the, to the docks and you're asking the captains, they're like, are you a sailor? 
it took a long time and it was really complicated, but eventually I found a boat that was willing to take me and Judas to Colombia. But when John and Judas got to Colombia, border officials there wouldn't accept the papers for Judas that Panama had issued. So they said, this donkey, he can't come into our country. Uh, you have to go back to Panama and do all the paperwork there again and then come back. And it was like, you don't know how hard it was to get on this boat. And it kind of became a little bit of an international incident because Colombia wasn't accepting the sanitation papers of Panama and they saw it as a breach of their autonomy and it kind of blew up. There was lots of like press and all the national uh, broadcasting companies like came and interviewed me. Eventually, Colombia just dug in their heels and they said, no, we're not letting this donkey in. They wouldn't even let him off the boat in the docks to to be able to eat, I had to cut all the grass and bring it onto the boat. Eventually the boat just had to leave. For Venezuela. So that's where John and Judas had to go. Venezuela was the last place on the planet, probably, that I wanted to go to. At the time, the communist dictator Hugo Chavez was president of Venezuela. He didn't get along with then-president George W. Bush. Tension between the countries got so high that Chavez kicked the whole American embassy out of Venezuela. The Venezuelan government watched American visitors suspiciously and sometimes held them against their will. So John had no desire to get in the middle of all of that. But that's where I had to go because it was either abandon my donkey or my friend at this point uh, or continue on to Venezuela. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about you literally cutting the grass to bring to your donkey. I mean, that's a a special bond. It was a lot of work. (laughs) It's tiring. John and Judas spent about a year in Venezuela waiting to get into neighboring Colombia. While he worked through all the red tape, John tried to avoid the Venezuelan government, which viewed him as a spy, and also tried to keep Judas safe in the Caracas slum where they lived. I was working in um, horse stables because that was the only work that I could get, and it was a good place for him because he was he was in an environment where you know horses were safe. Um, but I would leave him in, uh, in the back of the horse stables in the day so that he could eat, and then at night I would bring him into the horse stables, and everybody in the neighborhood knew me. There are these things called invasions. I don't really know how you call them in, what you call them in English, but it's, when a, it's like uh, squatting. So if somebody squats on a land, here in the States you have to squat for like, I don't know, seven or eight years in order for the land to become yours. There you squat for one hour and it's yours. And basically it was Chavez wanted to kind of destabilize the the landowners. So one way that he could destabilize some of the landowners, the rich landowners, was to allow these invasions, these squatters. And so um, they weren't always the best of people. And so like there was a huge invasion behind the stables where I was at. A couple hundred people came in and just took over a huge field and started living there. So, you know, if a person's willing to steal land, they're definitely willing to steal a donkey. And then one day, Judas disappeared. I mean, when I first saw that he wasn't there, it was horrible. I mean, I felt like, yeah, I can't even describe it. I mean, I felt like, what if I lose him? What if I never see him again? Because they would, they would kill him and they would mix his meat with cow meat and they'd sell it cheap in the market. So there was a real possibility that I would, that I would never find him. And... One neighbor was a child kidnapper, that's what they did, and the other neighbor was an assassin. Like, there was really no law at the time. 
just whatever money was the law basically so it was terrifying but john had to get judas back so he snuck into the squatter's camp i had to get my friend back so he was tied up obviously like i could just whistle and he would come he knew my whistle he knew my voice and he would come to me Uh, but since he was tied up he couldn't come to me but he would bray so i knew where he was at and so i went in like at midnight and i stole him back I found him, he was just standing there waiting for me, and we walked out, we didn't see a single person, so to me, I was really thankful for that. I was much more careful with him after that. (laughs) Finally, after months of paperwork, John and Judas were allowed to pass through Colombia and continue on their journey, into the high trails of Ecuador and on to Peru. And these high trails can be dangerous because um, they're quite thin, skinny and quite thin, and then just the drop-off is just, you know, miles down to the creek bed. So uh, they can be quite dangerous, especially during the rainy season, um, because the dirt and the, and the rocks, they tend to loosen because of the rain. So we were walking, and he just stopped. He just stopped in the middle of the trail, and <laughs> I was kind of annoyed and, like, you know, probably yelling at him. I don't remember, like, why are you stopping? Oye, burro, que le pasa? So he just stopped, and I'm like, what are you doing? What's going on? And, like, a couple seconds later, the path from above just washed out. There was, like, a landslide, and I don't know what would happen to us. Well, it, he wouldn't have been in there, but if I had been in the middle of that, it could have been very dangerous. And Peru's just, like, gorgeous. I mean, it's an unbelievable. The Andes are unbelievable. They're so high, and... Real, like, rugged beauty. I really love Peru. There's all sorts of trails, just like single-track trails that go across Peru. There's a there's a set of trails, which are the Inca trails, the old Inca highways that the Inca Empire built when they were in control of Peru. And so following those all the way across Peru is one of the neatest experiences, something I never could have done alone. It was so much more enjoyable and, and, and interesting with, with Judas to come with me. John and Judas entered the Chaco, a savanna region spanning parts of Paraguay and Bolivia. In the Chaco, towns are hundreds of miles apart with not much in between, except lots and lots of jaguars. The people would tell me, you can't go out there, there's, there's jaguar, and the jaguar will kill you and eat you in the in night, and they're really, really aggressive. The few ranchers that live out there, they would always have guns with them, they would never not have guns with them. When we went out into the Chaco, I was a little bit nervous, but I also knew a little bit about how donkeys are and what would happen in the night time when I was sleeping, the jaguar would approach our camp and my donkey, Judas, would just go crazy. He would just start running and jumping and kicking and really dramatic movements. I don't know if you've ever seen a wild horse. Like You don't really want to approach it. So this is what he did. And I didn't really know what was going on at the time, but uh, basically the jaguar was was approaching and Judas was saying, If you come any closer, you're going to have to deal with me, basically. But the jaguar would several times approach in the night, and he would basically chase them off. So I felt like if I had tried to do that by myself, maybe I wouldn't be here right now. Uh, I feel like like he saved my life in those instances. Did you ever see him as, like, a a guardian angel? Um, Like, lots of people... Lots of people did. I don't know... I never, I never really viewed him in, in that spiritual sense, although I wouldn't say that that would be impossible. I did see him as, as someone who, who protected me in many situations. 
At one point in Brazil, he was bitten by a snake, and people would always say that there was a good chance that if it hadn't bitten him, maybe it would have bitten me. His head fell, his, his tongue came out. He just looked like, like he was, uh, you know, like he was drunk, he started to sway. Uh, he fell. I just, I stayed up with him all night. I, I thought that he was going to die at any moment. I thought I was going to lose him. But donkeys are really tough. And in the morning, he, he got up. He didn't recognize me. I thought maybe something had happened to his eyesight. Although in retrospect, I think maybe something happened to his ability to smell. Because that's one way he would identify me. Uh, with my voice mainly and with my smell. It took him a while to kind of recover from that. It was, it was an incredible shock. I, uh, the people told me any horse would have died for sure, uh, and that I would have died too if I'd been bitten by that snake. So he, he survived and we stopped for about a month and it seemed to me that he had recovered completely and we, we started walking again. At this point, John and Judas had been walking together for about five years across Mexico, Central America, and nearly all the countries in South America. Judas had never acted confused, but now, after the snake bite, he seemed different. John says Judas seemed less confident than usual about which plants were safe or good to eat. And when we got into southern Brazil, this was like three or four months after Judas had been bitten by the snake, he got real sick one night. It wasn't the first time that he had been sick, but in the morning, he wasn't there. I would just leave him loose at night so he could eat whatever he wanted, and then he would usually eat and then come back and stand guard by my tent. But this night, he walked past a house a couple kilometers down the road, and the dog started barking, so the owner came out, and he had seen me pass the evening before, so he knew it was my donkey, and he thought, oh, he just escaped, so I'll tie him up. And in the morning, he wasn't there. I was whistling, and he wasn't coming, and so I followed his tracks to the house, and and it was only, he was basically just waiting for me when, when I got there. He brayed really loud and pushed up against me, and about 15 minutes later he fell, and then it wasn't much longer before he died. And when he died, I mean, I just ran into the woods and just sat down and cried. I didn't know. Uh, it was a really, really emotional time for me, and I didn't know, I couldn't even believe it. I just couldn't believe it. I just kept saying, how, how, why? I, I, it was really traumatic for me, and, uh, and it took me a long time to, to kind of regather myself after that. So I took him, and I took him back to the point where we had reached walking, the last point that he had walked, and uh, which took most of the day because donkeys were really heavy. And I dug a hole, and I worked all night, and it took, you know, it took all night, and about noon the next day I had him... I had him buried, and I just spent about a month right there in that spot. I was about 20 miles from town, and the people were super nice. People would always, they would come out, and they'd bring me food, and they would try to encourage me, and people would offer me another animal, and, uh, and I just kind of sat there and just thought and decided what, what was next, and uh, I built him like a little uh, gravestone, and that was my way of saying goodbye to him. Donkeys can live to 30 or even 40 years, so I felt like we should be dying together. Like, he should have been with me the rest of my life. But John wanted to finish what he and Judas had started. So he decided to keep going to the tip of South America. And 
the people in the little village, they bought me a backpack and I had to put all my stuff in there and, and now I'm the donkey. I'm the one that has to carry all the weight. And uh, it was really hard walking away from his gravesite though. So uh, that was, for me, that was kind of the end of, of that journey because he had opened up so many possibilities for me, so many doors. And when I was walking alone, all those doors were closed. Like people didn't approach me, people didn't talk to me. It was much more isolating. Would you ever go back to visit that site, his gravesite? I did uh, when I came back on my motorcycle. I was able to go go by the same place and and meet the people that helped me while I was there. And I stayed about a month there, visiting with the, with all the people from that little town and the little ranch that was next to his grave. And and the people are awesome. Like they would always go out and like kind of take care of his gravesite. And like the road crews would always clean around his gravesite, which was further off the road than they would normally clean. So like it was well taken care of and. Uh, and it was, it was really, it wasn't, it wasn't a sad time to go back and see his grave. It was really a happy time. It was really um, a blessing to be able to, to meet with those people again and to see his grave and, and just to, to remember all the things that, that I got to experience because of him. Outside In was produced this week, not by us, but by our friends over at Wyoming Public Radio, the team at Human Nature. You should check out more of their stories. They are a lot of fun. There's one about Bigfoot in particular that I recommend. Their website is humannaturepodcast.org, and the words human and nature share the letter N. Get it? They're on Twitter, too, Human Nature Show. And you can follow us on the social medias at Outside In Radio or on our website, outsideinradio.org. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Music